sin. It is an amazingly destructive force. It has the power to twist and even ruin relationships. Sin can impoverish, it can weaken, it can deceive us and leave us, frankly, stupid. It can enslave us to the most insane, counterproductive, debilitating patterns of life with our full cooperation. Sin has the power to extinguish joy and hope, leaving us discouraged and listless in the face of future dreams left shattered at our feet. Yet beyond sin's power to wreak havoc in our lives, its most potent evil is to lure us away from the living God. God is truth. God is love. God is hope. God is life. And spiritual infidelity to God then is always disastrous on some level. Yet despite the power of sin, there remains dangerous hope in the abundant grace of God toward sinners. I say dangerous because God's love for His people will not permit us to choose sin over faithfulness without doing something about it. I say dangerous because God is a jealous God. He's a God who loves His people to the degree that He will fight for our holiness even if we will not. Sin is an enemy of your soul. And if you won't fight it, if you won't labor to root it out, if I will not do this, if we remain content in breaking God's law and sacrificing the joy of close fellowship with Him, He will not stand idly by. God will never stop pouring out His grace upon His people, nor will He ever stop contending for our holiness. Sin destroys, but God will have a holy people. And that can be dangerous. So we come to Numbers 22 through 24. For an extended period of time, we remember that God has been pouring out His grace upon the children of Israel. As we just locate ourselves once again in the story, the journey has taken place from Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai and then up stationed in that second theater at Kadesh. Then the spies going up and through the land up north and then back south and the people rejecting the promise of God and the provision of God and now have worked their way around Edom and have become stationed in the region of Moab. And there's been a lot of interaction here that Israel doesn't even know is going on with Moab. To the east, on the mountain heights looming above the encamped nation, Balak, the king of Moab, looks down upon the encamped nation and has hired Balaam, a hotshot diviner from far away that he's hired to come in and to curse Israel for Moab, for King Balak and for his nation. 
So we can even just picture it physically here. Up on the heights to the east. Israel down here on the Jordan River Valley. Encamped and looking down from those heights upon the nation. Balak is conspiring with Balaam to curse Israel. Chapter 23 and verse 8, however, we see what God does as He twists the intentions of these men and uses them actually to bless Israel. Balaam says prophetically, divining the will of God in 23 verse 8, how can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see Him. From the hills I behold Him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. A holy people of God. I look down upon them in their encampment. Chapter 24, verse 5. He tries again to curse Israel. It says this prophetically, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. Verses 8 and 9 of the same chapter, God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. The blessing of God upon his nation. Verse 17, I see him from the heights again, looking down from these crags, I see him. But not now, I behold him, but not near. I don't see all that will come, but a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Wow, Balak did not get his money's worth out of this prophecy, did he? Your nation will be crushed. And this star that will come out of Jacob, that will rise in power, King David and ultimately King David's greater son, will break down all the sons of Sheth, and on it goes in judgment. Think of that line. And even again, just picturing these two men on the mountain heights above, looking down upon the encamped nation and prophesying, saying this from God, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob! How lovely are your encampment, O Israel! So we stand on the mountain heights with these two that want to ruin Israel, and we know that contending on those heights... Very, there's evidences that Israel has no idea this is going on. God is contending for her. He is pouring out His blessing upon His people down there on the floor of the river valley. So we work our way down the mountain. We come down to this beautiful scene of the encamped Israelites. We see the smoke of the campfires rising and food there is Tents are filled with families eating together and living life together in this beautiful encampment. 
the aroma of the food cooking, the tents teeming with families, and there in the center of it all, the tabernacle. Perhaps smoke rising from that as well on the brazen altar as the people of God assembled around the tabernacle are His holy people. We come down into this encampment that is like no other nation on earth. God's distinct people, His chosen people. Israel has no idea of the curses that are coming down upon them from above in the intentions of their enemies. And the blessings that are pouring down upon them in the intention and purpose of God. God's amazing grace His steadfast, loyal love protects the nation from this unseen threat. And we walk down into the camp of His holy people. What a joy to see them living under this distinct blessing here at Shittim, Israel's last encampment before following God into the promised land. But what we find is not the beauty we anticipate. What we find is not the holy nation that we would want to see. But as we come to Numbers chapter 25, the first nine verses of this chapter present to us a situation in which God judges the infidelity of His covenant people. This beautiful picture of the nation, this beautiful picture of God's blessing upon her, His protection upon her, and we get down in among the tents, and it's really ugly. Sin is in the camp, destroying God's people, drawing them away from Him. We see, first of all, that Israel commits infidelity, verses 1 through 3a. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab, These invited the people of Israel to the sacrifices of these Canaanite gods. And the people ate, God's people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Began to whore with the daughters of Moab. This word began in the Hebrew text is is not, we get the sense began means to start something. But the Hebrew word is actually began in the sense of letting loose, of losing control. Or in some places it's translated profane. And so some have translated this, I think, well, the people profane themselves by fornicating with the daughters of Moab. It's a reference to cult prostitution and their participation in it. Indeed, as wicked as the illicit sex is in this body scene, a deeper root is chiefly in view, and we see that here as they bow down to their gods. So God is, so to speak, on the mountaintop, thwarting the demonic attack on Israel, while Israel, down on the ground in the encampment, is prostituting herself to the pagan sacrifices, to the gods of Canaanite god Baal. They've yoked together. That idea is that they have joined themselves to, or they have paired themselves with this pagan worship. It's a hopeless scene. It's a destructive scene. Baal was a Canaanite fertility god whose sexual consort had a name, Anath. 
and the people inventing their own gods projected upon them much sensuality. Drawn in by that sensual allure. I mean, just picture Israel's encamped down there and there's this invitation from Moabites around them. An invitation to uninhibited sex, to good food, eaten in sacrifice. And all you've got to do is just bow to our gods. Join with us. Come along. Enter into this. We have found this to be so exhilarating, so pleasurable, so fun. Will you not join us in our worship? We will. And they sold themselves to the insanity of pagan worship. God in His holiness will always contend for the holiness of His people. And He sentences Israel next in verse 3. The anger of the Lord, as we would expect, was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all of the chiefs of the people and hang them. You note the marginal translation, impale them in the sun before the Lord. That the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, perhaps those chosen in Exodus 18, to give wisdom and guidance to the nation, he said, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. God's anger rages like a wildfire. He loves Israel. He has redeemed Israel. He has covenanted with her and remained faithful to her. But Israel chooses to get mixed up with a sensual system in which virgins are violated, unwanted babies are sacrificed in the fire eventually, and the blinding, debilitating effects of wanton sex ravish Baal's followers. Enough, God cries in jealousy. Enough, He cries for the affections of His people. And the sentence here is to hang the leaders of Israel. Again, I think the better reading here is to impale because they failed to stop people if indeed they were not themselves involved. I think probably, I would take it this way, that verse 4 is the general discipline of the Lord. Verse 5 is the more specific that it applies to those who are particularly guilty in this affair. These leaders were likely the last of the generation that failed to enter the promised land in chapter 14. But hanging, or literally impaling, I mean there's a hanging involved here. It's pretty gruesome. But though the meaning of the word is uncertain, I think it it, it ties probably to a very well-known means of execution, and that was to drive through the body a spear or stake As that person died from that piercing, then to take that stake and turn it up and plant it in the ground with the person skewered on it. What's that remind you of? This is like a a cheap man's crucifixion. You get to take the wood home and use it again. The horrible execution. It was to send the message of warning That any who does what this individual has done, may a similar fate befall them. There is an attack here on the holiness of God and there is nothing more necessary to protect in this world than that. 
And so the execution of the ungodly is horrific, but in God's view, necessary. In verse 6, God, or Phineas intervenes in the situation as is necessary from these details. Verse 6, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So picture it, Moses and other faithful Israelites have gathered at the tabernacle to mourn Israel's sin, to appeal to God's grace. It's another tragedy on the order of Exodus 32 and that debacle that took place with the golden calf and the sensuality that epitomized that scene as well. So while this is going on at the tabernacle, this weeping, this probably prayers of intercession for Israel's protection, brazenly, in the full view of Moses, a man of the tribe of Simeon, encamped nearby on the south side of the tabernacle, brings a Moabite woman to his family. That's probably a phrase indicating coming to consummate a marriage. Bringing her into the tent. A marriage clearly forbidden by God. Exodus 34 Long before God has established, watch yourself as you go into this land, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of it. This land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. You're to stomp out every evidence of this false worship in all of its vileness. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. It wasn't like Israel was clueless here. This is God's counsel. This is his preparation. I'm sending you to a promised land, but you need to understand what's going on in that land. You are walking into a moral snake pit. And this is how it will work. And this is how you must equip yourself and prepare yourself to stand against this influence. Think about it again. God is sending Israel in here to discipline these nations, to wipe them out because they are unrecoverable. They're unredeemable. Now, individuals could choose to identify with Israel, the holy people, and follow the holy God. But as people, they have gone so long in the debauchery of their sin, they are so morally corrupt, there is nothing left but to remove them from the face of the earth. And the moral corruption that is so deeply founded within them, they're going to invite you into it. If you could think of the most destructive cancer, and if it could be put into a bottle and consumed, they're going to hand you that bottle 
and you're going to drink that poison. Don't drink it. You must remain my holy people, separated from these godless practices. These people are so corrupt in their sensuality as to say that drink and food and sex is more important to us than our own children. They consistently put their children on fires and burn them to death so they could get what they wanted. I love you enough to say, don't drink it. Don't go there. That's exactly what this man does as he brings a Midianite woman into the camp, not only doing that, but doing it right under the nose of Moses. It seems to be a brazen flaunting, I will do this. It's a man insanely in love with his own sensual pleasure. Verse 7, But when Phinehas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped plague we haven't even heard about yet. Phineas, Aaron's grandson, so a man in line to become the high priest. Aaron died in his early 80s, so accounting for the early marriage practices of the day. Phineas is maybe late 40s, early 50s. This is not an impetuous act by a young man. This is a priest who understands that the wages of sin is death. This is a priest who understands his calling to stand between the judgment of God and his people. This is a priest who understands that death has come as judgment to the camp and it is rampant, running itself through the camp as God cuts down people in discipline. So Phineas apparently follows the couple into the man's tent and pins the two of them onto the earth while they lie with one another in the tent. And God's judgment is stopped. Wow, this is ugly, is it not? It's just brutal ugliness. But it teaches us God's view of sin and the destruction that sin causes. Phineas, in spearing this man, literally fulfills what God has demanded in verse 5. And while the text does not fill in this detail, I assume the couple was indeed carried out on the spear. And the spear staked into the ground and their skewered bodies left to dry in the sun and to bear witness of the gruesome nature of sin and of the wrath of God. It's not a God who leads on the evening news. It's not a God who people want to know about. It's a God, in fact, who many would claim isn't here anymore. He's been displaced. But this is God. 
He doesn't operate this way now. He doesn't call us to operate this way now. But we see His anger against sin. We see His just judgment of it. And we see in verse 9, Israel's continued suffering. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Israel's sin was dramatic and God's judgment was dramatic. Remember what Satan said in the garden. You will not surely die. God sends a clear message here to his people. You will surely die. Sin results in death. The wages of sin is death. As we think of this couple, we think of our own nation and our own environment here and how many would say sex is a private matter keep the ethics police out of my bedroom well it is a private matter intended to be a private matter when enjoyed by a faithful husband and wife under the blessing of God that's also his grace and his blessing pouring down upon his people Indeed, sexual sin can remain, by God's grace, a private matter if it is confessed as sin, if proper restitution is made, if there's an acknowledgement before God that satisfies His disciplinary anger and says, I know that I was wrong. I confess my sin. I repent of it. I seek God's grace and forgiveness. Their sin can at times, depending on circumstances, remain private. But when God's people break God's law, when they commit infidelity against Him by engaging in sex outside of marriage, and when they remain impenitent, that does become a public matter. And while our day is different, we operate under a different covenant It is nonetheless the necessity of the people of God to remain pure that when there is impenitent, persistent sin where one will not repent and change, it must become a public matter. Not to shame the individual as much as to honor the integrity and the holiness of the God who saved us and called us by His name. In our day, under a new covenant, what that looks like is church discipline. It is the body of God's people speaking to one who says, leave me alone, I will do things my way. The body speaking and saying, you can't. You belong to a holy God. His law must be obeyed. And where you refuse to obey that, We will call you to repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. So, don't try this at home, what Phineas did. This is not our calling. This is not the way that God is working through His people today. But when we with righteous zeal and faithfulness in loving correction stand against impenitent sin, even when it is something so private, We play the part of a Phineas, in a sense, as a church. And we say, God's name comes first, not your privacy. You are not free as a child of God. 
to live however you find pleasure. There is a calling upon God's people, and it is not, he is not to be trifled with in this. But again, let me hasten to say that illicit sex is really not the deepest root of this passage. Far more significantly, it is Israel bowing down to the idols of the pagan worshipers. The immorality is a fruit of that, and it is a wicked fruit of that, but it goes down deeper to what fills the heart and what the longings and affections of the heart are. And this is where immorality comes from and why we need to address it so aggressively and rightly. Because it's never just about the sex. It's about the heart attitude that's more deeply rooted that leads to such an act. That is what must be addressed. And so God judges the infidelity of his covenant people in this affair, judging through Phineas in particular. And that brings us to the second segment of the text where God commends the jealousy of his chosen priest. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. The word jealousy, the Hebrew word commonly used in context of the jealousy of a married person whose mate betrays them. That's the type of jealousy he's talking about. I love you, Israel. You are mine. I have bought you. I have made you my own and I have given my life away to bless you and use you for my glory and for your joy. I am jealous for you. It speaks of conjugal zeal flowing from covenant loyalty and fidelity. Phineas then is a priest. That is, he is to model the heart of God and the jealousy in his heart models God's jealousy for his people. He incarnated the character of God as was his calling in that day. And again, I stress here, that day. It is decidedly not our calling to execute capital punishment against those who commit sexual immorality. There are some distinct features here in this whole matter both covenant-wise and just the, the historical setting. Our calling on this side of the cross does not eliminate the legitimacy of the calling that others had, however, in different eras of salvation history. The fact that it's not our calling does not mean it was no one's calling. And I don't think we need to apologize for Israel and apologize for this text. It was a different day. It was a different era. Our calling is intended to be captured by this text. Our attention to be captured. Here, it's not the legitimacy of Phineas's work with a spear, but it is the reality of God's anger against sin. That is what is to capture us. And God's view is that the Canaanite debauchery is so deep 
that it is worthy of nothing but extermination. So God had no time for seeing his people plunge into that cesspool of debauchery. Phineas's fidelity was to ransom the nation from God's holy wrath against sin. Accordingly, verse 12, Therefore, says God, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. It shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Quite a priest making atonement, a term usually described of the effects of animal sacrifice under the old covenant. But here the atonement was not the blood of lambs but the blood of the sinners themselves. And now a perpetual priesthood, that is, a high priesthood would remain in his family in perpetuity, a high honor, a covenantal reward. These concepts obviously channel us unmistakably to Christ, the great high priest, who made atonement for sinners of all kinds, of all shapes and sizes. We too worship false gods. There is the God of self-pleasure, the God of self-honor, the God of wealth, and indeed of illicit sex. But Jesus, our high priest, accepted impalement for us, so to speak. Being impaled to a cross in our place and earning for his people the ultimate atonement, the atonement that was finished and final as he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. If we repent and believe, trusting that great high priest, trusting in his atonement, his death pays the penalty that we deserve. Phineas as a priest is pointing us in that direction. And what joy we have. And as we look at this scene, we go, how horrible is it? How glad I am I don't live in that era. 24,000 people cut down in discipline. These two skewered with a spear. It's ugly. It's horrible. I tell you, we take all of this horror. These are just small chips and pieces of the horror suffered by Christ in your place and mine. To take the penalty of our sin, to suffer the full wrath of God, not in bite-sized pieces like we see here, as bad as it is, but the whole cup drained. As we've sung, it was my sin that put him there. It was my sin that led to that ultimate judgment upon sin we see another phrase another phase of that judgment here in verses 14 and 15 as Midian is judged verse 14 we see the offending couple verses 14 and 15 the name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri the son of Salu chief of the father's house belonging to the Simeonites Phineas delivered the blow of judgment against this Midianite princess the name of the Midianite woman, verse 15, who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. Judgment upon the nation continues, verse 16, as the Lord speaks to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, 
For they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Some make of this phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses as an indication of his exoneration in this situation and God working with him again in a new way. Others have a much more negative view of Moses in this scene. I would lean more toward the positive view. But I think that's indicated here by the turn of phrase in verse 16. We won't go into that any further than just to mention that as we think of the method of interpretation. But Israel will be indeed defeated by, or will defeat the Midianites in chapter 31. And it's in that chapter that we learn that Balaam was instrumental in this seduction of Israel. Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. You see the yellow wording there. The yellow highlight. Take that out and it would fit perfectly with Numbers chapter 25. It would just be a reference to Numbers 25. But we have this added idea that it was through the council of Balaam. So if oppression does not work, if you can't conjure up a curse upon God's people, then move to seduction. And that worked. He could not take down a single Israelite through opposition, oppression, and curse. But 24,000 were taken down through seduction. If he cannot intimidate you into if Satan cannot intimidate you into abandoning your loyalty to Christ, he will well try to beguile you with the allures of the world's ways. That takes down more Christians. That reveals lost hearts, perhaps more than the oppression and the persecution. Well, what do you make of Numbers 25? I mean, this is one ugly, ugly affair. As sin always is. And I think in part that's what the Spirit of God is communicating to us. This is ugly. Knowing that God has been protecting the nation and actively blessing her by rerouting Balaam's oracles, Israel's sin is seen as all the more vile. But Christian, your sin and my sin is no prettier. We find ourselves in a situation that's actually heightened in the distinctiveness. In that we serve a Christ whose atoning death redeems us from sin. He breaks sin's power in us through His salvation. He secures our home with Him for all eternity. The blessing of God for the new covenant believer is greater. And yet, while the grace of these blessings flow down upon us, redeemed, forgiven, indwelt, secured. Those blessings flowing from above upon us, yet we turn our affections to the gods of this world. It's insanity. Christian man watches pornography 
Well, God's grace pours down upon him. A Christian woman enters into an adulterous relationship while God's grace protects her soul from Satan's conquest. Believers choose to love money over God as He blesses them with money. We idolize children. We worship careers. We refuse to yield time to God. We refuse to use our capacities to the service of His kingdom and the spread of the gospel. We hide from His calling and He pours down atoning grace and mercy. What we deserve in these idolatries is judgment. What we get is the discipline of a loving father. What we deserve is his rejection. What we get is his correcting grace. What we deserve is our full corruption. What we get under the new covenant is a new heart. The heart that Israel so desperately needed is given to us through Christ to redeem us and to sanctify us. Christian, let's come to terms with it. Sin is, and its allure is going to haunt us until we meet Christ. It is going to haunt you. It's going to be there every day of your life to do what you know God does not want you to do, to find pleasure and to turn your affections into idolatrous, wrong pathways. But know this, brothers and sisters. If you are truly born again, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and His redemption, He will never stop contending for your holiness. He won't quit. It may mean discipline, It may mean a lot of rerouting in your life. But if you belong to Christ, He will not quit. He will keep after us, contending for our holiness. Never stop laboring to purify us from sin. In the command of husbands to love their wives, the exemplar is our Savior Jesus Christ, who loves the church, gives himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This should serve as a warning on one hand. We need correction. But on the other hand, it is a reminder of His amazing grace that just keeps flowing to us to sanctify us and to change us. And may that reminder spur us away from the gods of this world and the appeal of the flesh. 
may we tap into knowing what God is doing, that he will never quit pouring out his grace, working to sanctify us, and may that help us to see the ugliness and the destructive power of our sin. To spur us away from the gods of this world. May that reminder spur us on to a zealous devotion to God with all our hearts and to contend for His glory as God's temple. We read together earlier from 2 Corinthians. And let me just remind us of 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That now is our focus, to know that Christ has atoned for my sin and has broken the power of sin in my life, that He will continue to contend for my holiness as I submit to Him, turning from sin and walking in His ways. And ultimately, through His promises, through His grace, through His provision, we will stand in His presence, and as we have sung today, at least poetically, all creation will shout as one. The wretch is made his treasure. That's your destiny, Christian. Live like it. Give yourself away in zealous devotion to Christ until the wretch stands as his glorified treasure. May he hasten that day. Father, we ask for it. We pray that you'd continue to do your sanctifying work. I'm sure that many here would agree with me. We'd become so frustrated, so incredulous to our sin. How is it possible for us to choose anything but your way and your will and your purposes? But we struggle. We acknowledge it. I thank you for those who evidence in this assembly quick turn to repentance. Who are willing to confess their sin and to move forward and to seek your forgiving grace. Lord, deepen that habit, that root within us. And I know as well that in a congregation of this size, there's undoubtedly secrets there is a giving away of self to the idols of this world in ways that perhaps others see and the sinner doesn't know it or perhaps that no one sees but the sinner himself or herself. God, I pray that you do your work and that you'd help us to see your glory and to see your love for us and that you deepen your people. And for someone here, those among us that stand with their sin before your throne, and have nothing to atone but themselves. God, help them to see the danger of their position. Help them to remove the affections for the lusts of this world, for the gods of this world, to have it removed by the greater affection for you, our Lord and Savior. Open blind eyes and sanctify your people, we pray, as we consider this passage, its seriousness, the ugliness of sin, but the glory 
to which we are destined in Christ. Hasten that day and aid us as we inch our way there. Through Christ we pray.